Matthew chapter 5, Jesus continues the Sermon on the Mount in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We've been studying the Sermon on the Mount or the King's Constitution. And the theme of Jesus' great message has been real righteousness. In this sermon, Jesus describes the kind of conduct that comes from character. Warren Wiersbe said, character always comes before conduct. Because what we are determines what we do, and that's correct. The teaching of Jesus invites us to examine our attitude about ourselves, about others, about the world. And what have we learned so far? We've learned that both righteousness and sin are something that takes place first on the inside. And then on the outside, who are the blessed? Those who sense their sin and recognize their ruin. And they run into the arms of God. The poor in spirit admit spiritual bankruptcy. They don't simply admit their need, but they're also willing to do something about it in verse 3. The sinner mourns, expresses True sorrow over sin in verse 4. The sinner admits dependence upon God in every area of life in verse 3. Mourns and grieves over the nature of sin and the consequences of sin. Personal sin in my life and then sin in the world. And then we submit to the authority of God in our lives. That's the idea. We are meek in verse 5, meaning teachable, unwilling to defend ourselves in our sin, willing to admit our sin, turn from the sin. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. We long for God in our life. We long for righteousness, and so by faith, we ask for it in verse 6. We cultivate a forgiving spirit, love, and a willingness to offer resources to the undeserving in verse 7. We are merciful in verse 7. We're pure in heart in verse 8, willing to keep our lives clean and pure before God, unwilling to accept substitutes for holiness. We are peacemakers and not troublemakers, pointing people to God since humanity is in rebellion in verse 9. And what happens when we deny ourselves? What happens when we oppose Satan? What happens when we confront the world and the lost people in it? We invite persecution. We invite persecution. 
Because the poor in spirit depend upon God. The sinner grieves over personal sin of self and others. The, the meek are willing to live under the authority of God. The, and again, as we hunger and thirst for righteousness, it builds, it grows. And this hunger and thirst comes from God. The merciful receive undeserved relief in the face of heartbreaking pain, misery, and difficulty. The pure in heart are clean on the inside and they wish to see God's will come to pass on the outside and the peacemakers are working hard to reconcile a broken world back to God. And so you can imagine since Satan and this world are trying to keep people estranged from God and so they're going to to work hard in Opposing the gospel. What happens when you live in a world that praises pride and despises humility? Imagine both Satan and the world envision a world where there's no consequences for rebellion. And there's no problem with sin. And the Lord God wants to reconcile his enemies and make them children And so Jesus says, you can expect persecution. And if we think the way God wants us to think, and if we live the way Christ calls us to live, Jesus says, I need you to understand something, that you can expect opposition and persecution. We will suffer, but we have to make sure that our suffering is not the consequence of our own wicked and foolish behavior. So what can we expect from the world? Jesus says, happy are the harassed. What? What? We've read all of the ones that have gone before us and we've went, what? What? This beatitude might be the most difficult of all of them. Jesus, what are you saying? Suffering, pain, persecution, opposition. I know that they weren't on your Christmas list and they're not on your New Year's list. The world has already rejected humility. The world has already rejected mourning over sin. They've rejected gentleness. They've rejected righteousness. They've rejected mercy. They've rejected purity of heart. They've rejected peacemaking. They've rejected holiness. And so guess what? The moment you decide that you're going to live this life, they will reject you. And so Jesus speaks of the reality of persecution in verse 10. The reasons for persecution in verse 11. And again, the reward for persecution in verse 12. Look again in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The people being harassed are the citizens In the kingdom, those who have embraced the king's constitution. Remember, Paul confirms this. He warns Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
He warned again, Timothy, in chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, followed my manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconia, at Lystra. In other words, he didn't say this is just an isolated instance on this thing that we called life, but you can almost genuinely expect it wherever you go, in Denver, in Colorado Springs, if you travel to California, or the New York Highlands, the Red... The, this land, go from left to right, north to south. I forgot the words of the song. <laughs> Persecution is a reality for those who live in opposition to Satan and this world. I want you to do the math. If your goal is to become like Christ, if you want to reflect his love, if you want to cultivate his character, if you want to walk in his footsteps, if you want to fulfill God's will, then you will experience persecution. The writer of Hebrews said in chapter 12, verse 3, Consider Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The implication being that you can grow weary and that you run the risk of losing heart. Because you see, the Bible says that righteousness is confrontational. I know that Francis of Assisi is often quoted as saying, live the gospel. Sometimes use words. But every biography of everything that has ever been written by Francis, it never says anything like that. Francis was a person who actually spoke the gospel. The gospel and righteousness is confrontational. In a book entitled Children's Letters to God, children under the age of six were invited to ask God questions. Larry writes, quote, Dear God, Maybe Cain and Abel wouldn't kill each other so much if they had their own rooms. It works with my brother. Unquote. Now Larry cares about social violence and domestic harmony. But I want to point something out. Even if you are only six years old. Abel didn't preach to Cain. He simply lived a life of holiness. And truth and submission to God. He wanted to worship God in spirit and in truth. He lived in opposition to Cain's man-made religion. And Cain hated his brother for it. When Moses chose to identify with the despised and rejected children of Israel, he drove a wedge in his Egyptian pagan past. The first stage of persecution is always opposition. It's always ridicule. They will ridicule Christ. Then they'll ridicule the church. And then they'll ridicule his followers. 
Attack Christians in the media. Silence Christians in public forums. Silence Christians in schools. And some of you may have already experienced it. In your workplace. In your school. Tragically. Heartbreakingly. In your home. You just want to love the Lord. You just want to serve him. And remember that persecution has been a reality for Christians in every generation. Thomas Watson, the Puritan writer, said, quote, Though they be never so meek or merciful or pure in heart, their piety will not shield them from sufferings. They must hang their harp on the willows and take their cross. The way to heaven is the way of thorns and blood. Set it down as a maxim. If you follow Christ, you must see the swords and the staves, unquote. Every generation generation after generation so what is was it what is it about hardship was it what is it about pain what is it about suffering that we so despise well because it hurts but what is it about hardship and what is it about pain that causes us to love the lord more deeply and trust him more fully Said abadini before Christmas, was able to get a letter out about his imprisonment and incarceration in an Iranian prison. Do you know how he spent Christmas? He has a cell and a bed, and his Christmas decoration, a single piece of paper. What is on that single piece of paper? A cross. And what did that single piece of paper, hanging on his cell, invite from his persecutors? Repeated ridicule, slapping, beating, shoving, pushing. The Bible indicates that godly persecution might be one of the most persuasive evidences that you have a right relationship with God and Christ. Paul sent Timothy to the Thessalonians and he said, quote, so that no man may be disturbed by these afflictions for you yourselves know that what we have been destined for this for indeed when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction and so it came to pass and so you know. Paul says to Timothy, we warned you that this might happen. Jesus warns them that this might happen. We are to expect persecution. And so what what I'm going to say is probably going to disturb maybe some of you. If you've never received ridicule, if you've never undergone criticism, if you've never experienced rejection because of your faith, you have every reason to doubt just what kind of a faith you have. John Wesley was so encouraged by persecution that he actually started to panic when no one had nothing bad to say about him. He would go from place to place and preach. And one day he went for five days, received not a single word of criticism, criticism, didn't sing, he wasn't beaten and he wasn't slapped and nobody threw rocks at him. And he started to think that he might be backsliding and he paused on his horse. He got off of his horse and he began to pray in the middle of a field. Oh, 
God, has my faith grown cold? Has my heart grown cold? Has my passion ceased? And somebody on the other side of the bushes says, that's that itinerant preacher, John Wesley. I hate him. And he picked up a rock and he threw it at him. And the rock whizzed by him and he goes, oh, thank you, Jesus. It might be difficult for you to think about it in those terms. But in Philippians chapter 1 verse 29, Paul wrote, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here, In me, Paul's consistent reminder as he writes in the book of Romans, as he writes in the book of Philippians, is that if you do what I do, you can expect to get what I got. Persecution is a badge of identity and destiny. It's as much a badge of identity and destiny of the person who's being persecuted as it is the people doing the persecution. Tertullian was a Christian leader in the second century. A man came to him and said, quote, I've come to Christ, but I don't know what to do. I have a job that I don't think is consistent with what the scriptures teach. What can I do? I have to live. To that, Tertullian replied, must you? Must you? In other words, in the early church, loyalty to Jesus was the only option for the Christian. Well, I could die, I know. I could, have, I could go without, I know. I could lose my job, I know. To be prepared for the kingdom, you have to be prepared to be lonely. To be misunderstood, to be rejected, to be ridiculed. Because the moment, the moment, the moment you say no to a hating and an impure world, they will hate you. And so what happens, what happens, what happens if you live the life that's described in verses 3 through 9? What happens if you say, no, purity is going to be a part of my life. No, integrity is going to be a part of my life. No, peace is going to be a part of my life. The moment that you make that commitment, then you can expect opposition. And there's something powerful that takes place between verses 10 and verses 11. Look what it says, the reason for persecution. In verse 11, it says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Something has happened in the text. In verse 3, it's blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. But now it's gone from them to you. There's an important transition that has taken place. This is significant 
And not only is it significant, significant that it goes from they to you, but this, this here for the first time, Jesus puts himself in the picture. He puts himself in the sermon. By the way, what was the reason for persecution in verse 10? Righteousness. You're doing what's right. What's the reason for persecution in verse 11? Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. Underline it. For my sake. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's a persecution that comes not from being a jerk, not from being an idiot, not from being selfish, not from being weird. The more you identify with Jesus, the more you act like Jesus, the more you can expect to be treated like Jesus. Religious leaders often responded to Jesus with accusation and hate and fear and suspicion. And so Jesus says, expect insult, expect slander, expect persecution. What will loyalty and obedience to Jesus bring? Applause? The answer is no. It's going to bring slander, Jesus says. It's going to bring persecution, and history confirms that. All you have to do is just take a brief moment in your very busy lives and read a wonderful book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. And in that book, you will begin to read what happened to all of the people who decided to follow Jesus. What's going to become of them? Well, Andrew is going to be crucified on an X-shaped cross. James, one of the James brothers, is going to be beaten. He's going to be put on the top of the pinnacle he is going to be pushed off the side of the wall he's going to fall down the cliff into the gully where he somehow manages to survive and they will come and they will beat him to death with clubs that they would use to beat their laundry one disciple will be killed in India each and every one of them with the exception of John the apostle will die a horrible death. And it won't just end with them. It will continue into every generation. The very definition of righteousness in verse 10 is everything that Jesus says and does. And so no matter what you think about righteousness and then what you think about Jesus, it will bring persecution. And who are the persecuted? Look what it says. Blessed are you. These are the believers who face hardship. These are the believers who face torture. These are the believers who face imprisonment or death because of their faith in Christ. They're found everywhere in this world. When I go to India, it's incredible. I've had the privilege of Doing pastor's conferences there and leadership conferences there and graduations there. And you know how in our country they give you a diploma and sometimes you get a medal 
In India, you know what they do? They give you a shovel upon graduation. What in the world am I going to do with this shovel? KP will give them the shovel and they go, I know my brothers, you're going to Bihar. He goes, in Bihar, this is a place where there's unrelenting persecution. He says, when you get to the border, he says, take this shovel and then begin digging a hole on the other side of it. That way people will come up to you and they'll say, what are you doing? What are you doing? Why are you digging this hole? And they go, I'm digging my grave. Because this is what I expect. I don't expect to be received. I expect to be rejected. And when I am not received and when I am rejected, this is the place where you can throw my body in and bury me. But this isn't the kind of world in which we live in. Persecution begins with opposition in verse 10. It continues with slander in verse 11. And by the way, to revile means to insult. And to say all kinds of evil falsely means to slander. The definition of slander is to say something about someone that isn't true. There's no honor. There's no reward in being persecuted for being weird. Christians can be persecuted for living or behaving righteously. And sometimes Christians can be persecuted for being weird. John Corson tells the story of living in San Jose where there were a couple of ladies who claimed to preach the gospel visually by taking off their clothes and spreading their bodies with mustard paste to illustrate the story of the mustard seed. And when they were arrested, they claimed that they were being persecuted for righteousness sake. Not true. They were being weird. And being weird has no benefit. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about living your life, a regular Christian life, in your home, in your school, on your job, in your community, in the social system, in the political system. The moment you say something like, I'm a Christian, or I love Jesus, or I believe that the Bible is true, people will laugh at you, sometimes in a condescending way. Sometimes they'll just simply mock you. Sometimes they'll just simply imply that you're stupid. But it can get progressively worse. The word persecuted means chased, harassed, abused. Afflicted. Revile means insults. The literal meaning is to cast in the teeth or in our modern culture or in our modern vernacular. It means to get in one's face. It means to throw abusive words in your face. It means to mock viciously. And so now as Jesus has begun to describe the character and the conduct in the citizen, in the kingdom, the big question now becomes, do you still want your passport? Do you still want entry into the kingdom? 
Jesus says, expect abuse. In over 50 countries, Christians are facing sustained abuse. There are 50 million Christians who receive ongoing persecution of the worst sort and another 100 million who are facing sustained abuse. Christians are beheaded and crucified in those areas that are controlled by the Islamic states in the Middle East. In North Korea, it tops the list for persecuting Christians. In North Korea, they insult a Hollywood filmmaker or threaten violence in movie theaters and this administration extends sanctions but what about the tens of thousands of Christians who were tossed into prison camps who were murdered and tortured and they said nothing how can you have such a perverse wicked disconnect of priority of human rights When we as Christians or as a church act like the world, we only succeed in hiding heaven on earth. But when the world is pleased with the church, we can guarantee that God is not pleased. You know what's ironic? When the world is displeased with the church the chances are we're doing something right. So when we as Christians or as a church refuse to say what Jesus says or we refuse to do what Jesus does, then we are committing a horrible crime against our kingdom. All kinds of things falsely That's what Jesus is saying. These are abusive things behind our backs. The religious leaders will accuse Jesus of being a glutton. They'll accuse him of being a drunkard in Matthew chapter 11, verse 19. Think about it. Think about it. They would take someone like Jesus and accuse him falsely. Slander behind the back is harder because it's harder to defend. But instead of grief and regret, Jesus says, rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice because you did something right. And one of the greatest blessings, one of the greatest proofs of Christ's presence in our lives is the fact that people say stuff that just simply isn't true. It's okay to ask the question, why am I being persecuted? Again, a person can stand for high morals. A person can even preach and teach religious ideals. The Bible isn't just simply talking about standing for high morals or standing for goodness or standing for what appears to be appropriate. Jesus is talking about the thing that they can't countenance. If you dare To say that Jesus alone provides the basis for a right relationship with God. You'll light a fire in the belly of the unbeliever. 
If you dare say there is no other name given under heaven whereby human beings must be saved, like it says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, prepare to be killed like Stephen will be killed. Identification with Jesus will bring a response. What happens if you identify with the failed and flawed views of Marx or Freud or Dewey or Darwin? They'll give you a full professorship at some of the leading universities all over the country. If you embrace what the Bible rejects, if you accept what the Bible rejects, you'll be seen as educated, erudite, enlightened. And so Jesus mentions open hostility. The world will hate you because it hated Jesus. And Satan hates you. He hates you. He doesn't love you. He hates you. And Satan fears you when you act like Jesus. So let me ask you a question. What would you rather be? Hated or feared? And guess what? Hell begins to tremble. Demons, their knees begin to quake. The moment in personal humility, you just simply close your eyes and you say, Jesus, the only thing that I have to offer is what you can give me. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3, it says, Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners. And those who are mistreated as if you yourselves are suffering. In Acts chapter 8 verse 33 we read in his humiliation. That's Jesus. He was deprived of justice. You see they will oppose Christians. And then they will deprive Christians of justice. Christians are in jail in North Korea, in China, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Somalia, India, Pakistan. Their crime? Open. Identification. With Jesus. The reward for persecution? Look what it says in verse 12. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad... For great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. (laughs) I read a story about a preacher who quit the ministry after 20 years. He said, I've had it. I'm done. I'm leaving the ministry. They said, why are you leaving the ministry? And what are you leaving the ministry for? He says, I'm leaving the ministry to become a funeral director. And they said, what changed? And he said, I spent three years trying to straighten out John, and John's still a drunk. I spent six months trying to straighten out Susan's marriage, and she filed for divorce. I spent two years trying to straighten out Bob's drug problem, and he's still an addict. Now at the funeral home, when I straighten them out, they stay straight. And that works. 
You have an immediate gratification in the here and the now. But sometimes our reward isn't in the here. And sometimes it's not in the now. Look what Jesus says. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Cain will kill Abel. They will take Isaiah and they will put him in a pit and then they will saw him in half. Jeremiah will be subjected to unrelenting ridicule. Do you know what this means? Jesus is in effect saying, when we suffer for Jesus' sake, we will find ourselves in the best company ever. We stand in the company of the prophets of old. Persecution became the mark of faithfulness. It became the hallmark of genuine joy. And when we suffer for Jesus' sake, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we belong to him. Think about what Jesus is saying. When you're persecuted, you're receiving the same response that Moses received, that Isaiah received, that Jeremiah received, that Daniel received. Think of the king of Babylon, how he's manipulated into deceiving uh, and being deceived into making a decree that no one, no one, no one can pray any petition to any deity other than himself. And Daniel, in spite of the petition, does what Daniel has done every single day of his life. He opens up his windows west towards Jerusalem. To Jerusalem, and he gets down on his knees and he prays. He prays openly, he prays publicly, he prays in full view of everyone watching in the Babylonian skyline. And they take him and they arrest him and they cast him. Into a lion's den. Daniel is willing to suffer the consequences of obedience. And he's willing to continue to be faithful in a world that refuses to be faithful. You might have a present reward. You might be able to keep that relationship that you probably have no business being in. You might get to keep that job. But the truth is, it's been my experience that when you obey God and you honor God, that God will give you a God-honoring relationship and God will give you a better job. Are all believers rewarded in this life? No. But we can all have Christ's joy and we can always have his comfort and we can always have his strength. And look at the words of Jesus. Great is your reward in heaven. He doesn't say that you have necessarily a great reward on the earth. We're promised a great reward when we follow in the footsteps of the Old and the New Testament saints. Augustine said, 
When God crowns our merits, it is nothing other than his own gifts that he crowns. And the very fact that you're going to have a reward in heaven, it already means because he's going to give you a reward right here on the earth, you're going to be able to live a life free from guilt and free from terror. And what do I mean by that? For every single Christian who knows and loves Jesus, you can die with complete confidence knowing that God has a special place for you. Religion is not its own reward. But rejection in this world sometimes invites recognition in the next world. We might think it crass or opportunistic to speak of rewards. But Jesus is the one who sparked this conversation. Jesus is the one who's saying, great is your reward in heaven. What are the consequences of righteousness? What payment might we expect? Jesus says you can expect payment of persecution here in this world, but reward in the next world. What kind of of recognition or what kind of reward? You get a temporary recognition in this world. You get a permanent recognition in the next world. In the next chapter, in chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus will say, take care. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired and lose your reward from your Father in heaven. The The Lord will reward us above. Abundantly according to his standards. Jesus speaks of anyone giving up houses, giving up lands, giving up brothers, giving up sisters, giving up mothers, giving up fathers, that they'll receive a hundred times as much in return and in the end eternal life in Matthew chapter 19, verse 29. It's easy to do what's right. When you know there's a promise of recognition or a promise of praise. No wonder people say that you are what you really are. What you are is what you do in the dark. What you are is what you do when no one is looking and no one can see except the God of heaven. Well, what if the only person who knows the truth is your heavenly father? Jesus says, if the only person who knows the truth is your heavenly father, then there'll be great reward. Later, Jesus will, in chapter 6, call us to check our motives in the areas of generosity in chapter 6 verses 2 through 4 in the area of prayer chapter 6 verses 5 and 6 in the area of fasting chapter 6 verse 16 the big question that we have to ask is will we forfeit eternal rewards for a temporary convenience the moment that you say Here are my choices. I can choose Jesus or that. I can choose Jesus or that. How can we ignore Christ's emphasis in these few verses? He's saying, if you want righteousness, verse 6, if you want peace, verse 9, if you want joy verse 12 it's available 
Could it be that Paul had this very verse in mind when he wrote in Romans chapter 14, verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. He can write these kinds of words and he can say these kinds of things after being beaten over and over again, after being beaten with rods, after being incarcerated, after being arrested and mistreated over and over and over again. Do you know what Christians want? If you go to India, if you were able to somehow talk to the brother or the sister in Saudi Arabia, if you were able to somehow smuggle yourself into the prison camp in North Korea, if you could sneak right next to Saeed Abedini as he is in his Iranian jail cell right at this very moment and ask him, what is it that you He would say, pray for me. Pray for me. Now, you might think that that's some sort of religious cliche. But for Saeed Abedini, it's not a religious cliche. Because it's in the presence of your prayers that he sensed God's comfort and God's security and God's peace because that's what, that's what persecution does. It cuts you off. It isolates you. Christians who are persecuted feel cut off from fellowship. They long for a lifeline of worship and fellowship and what you take for granted they long for in their prison cell. Can you imagine if someone said to Saeed Abedini this morning, hey, guess what? We're going to have church. Saeed Abedini, by the way, is a Calvary pastor. He spent much of his life as a Calvary pastor going to Calvary Chapel services. He goes to, to service. He goes to worship. Do you think his wife, Nagme, do you think that their children forsake the assembling of themselves together? They long for the friendship and the fellowship and the security and the support that comes from real relationship with each other. You have brothers and sisters who are suffering all over the globe. And if you want to know more, you can provide them with prayer. And sometimes you can give them Bibles. Brother Andrew used to say, prayer isn't preparation for the battle. It is the battle. One Russian pastor nearly crippled for not giving up his Bible said, I could go to prison for having this book. But the reason why I keep this book is it's the only book. It's the only book that makes men free. One Russian prisoner in Siberia said, I wish I knew what was on the next page. He, he received one page from the Bible and he read it over and over and over and over again. And now he thinks not just simply what the Bible says, but what would, would the Bible say next? Eric Metaxas and John Stone Street offer a number of resources to help advocates who are interested in religious freedom. There's lots we can do. We can pray for them. We can visit them. 
We can support people like Nagme as she continues to work for her husband's release. We can volunteer, contribute to organizations that are on the front line. Places that we've worked with forever, like Gospel for Asia, like Open Doors, like Brother Andrew, like the Barnabas Fund, like the Joshua Fund, like Christian Freedom International, like Secret Believers, like the Voice of the Martyrs. There was a Chinese pastor named Wang Ming Dao. He was thrown into the prison at the age of 60 years old and he was at the height of his ministry. He was a well-known Bible teacher. He was a well-known evangelist and a Christian worker. And he wanted to preach more sermons and he wanted to write more books and he wanted to reach more people with the gospel. But he found himself arrested and he found himself in a lonely dark cell and he had no pen He had no paper. He had no books. He had no company. He had nothing to do except be with the Lord. And that's what he did. He was with the Lord. And 20 years later, he wrote, for 20 years, that was the greatest relationship that I've ever known. But the cell was the means, he writes. His advice to believers, I was pushed into a cell. But you're going to have to push yourself into one. You have no time to know God. He said you need to build yourself a cell so that you can do for yourself what persecution did for me. Simplify your life. Simplify your life and know the Lord. If you simplify your life and you get to care about what he cares about, you begin to love what he loves, then guess what? Now, all of a sudden, the scriptures will come true in your life. When you read the passage and you understand what Paul wrote when he said, pray for them as if you yourself We're with them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray for Saeed Abedini. Lord, we pray that literally scores of churches all across this great big land are praying for the persecuted church. Lord, we pray that you would give him comfort and strength and hope Lord, we pray that his fellowship with you would be sweet. And Lord, we pray that you would give him the strength and the comfort to do exactly what needs to be done in the circumstance that he finds himself in. Lord, we dare not invite persecution in our own lives through stupid, weird, or selfish behavior. But Lord, we pray that when it does come, when people laugh, when they mock, when they walk away, when they threaten, when they decide to make life uncomfortable. We pray that your love and your grace and your mercy and your peace and your joy would well up inside of us. Because Lord, we know 
that when we identify with you, you identify with us. And so again, Lord, we expect it. We don't welcome it, but we expect it. We don't want it, but we wonder, Lord, we wonder how our lives could be so disconnected from the reality of what it means to be a real Christian that no one wonders about our lives because it looks so much like everybody else's life. Lord, we pray that that condemnation would well up inside of us and we would make the commitment to submit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.